Would all the children through the eighth grade please come forward? You gonna pick me up when I get down here? You gonna get me up? Oh, come sit. Oh. I love that part. That's my favorite part, Mike. <laughs> Good morning. Morning. I don't look anything like Father Stan, do I? No. <laughs> Please say no, all of you. Come on. What is going on here? Wake up, wake up. No, I'm not, but he's on his way home today from North Carolina. So I am here in his place to tell you something about Jesus. Any of you ever done a cartwheel? Can, can you do them? Oh, I'm so jealous. You know, when I was a kid... I wanted so badly to do a cartwheel. I really did. I, I would get myself all set up. Can you stand up and show them how you get set up to do a cartwheel? Like I would get just like that. I would get, I mean, it was even better than that because I was really good at setting up. The problem was I didn't trust gravity enough to follow through with it. So I'd set up myself and then I'd go, no, not today. I don't know how many times I did that. Do you know I never did a cartwheel? I regret that some days. But the problem was I just didn't trust enough. And in today's gospel, if you look way down deep underneath it, that's what Jesus was asking all these people to do, was to trust him. Now, I can trust Jesus. I just don't trust gravity, okay? There's something wrong with gravity. I got news for you. It's not working even now, so whatever. But they couldn't do it. It's kind of like I couldn't do it with gravity and they couldn't do it with Jesus because they just didn't feel like they had enough to go through with it. They just wanted a little bit more assurance, a little bit more promise that it was going to work, you know? good news is, with Jesus, we don't have that problem. We know he's there for us, don't we? We know that when we do fall, he's going to help us back up, right? And that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to have God. And it's a lot easier for me to believe that Jesus is going to be there with me than it is for me to believe that gravity is going to let me flip myself over and land on my feet again. You will always land on your feet with Jesus. Always. And you know that, don't you? Okay. So, now that you know my deepest, darkest secret, you can go get a packet from the children's thing over there from Mr. Jeff, and you can sit and listen to the adult lesson, okay? Thanks. Ugh. Seriously, I don't know how he does that every week. Ugh. That hurts. Let me get myself organized here. Oh, good morning. Good morning. And welcome. And uh, I t 
told Lisa I wasn't going to say this, but I think I'm going to anyway. It's a disclaimer. God and I argued over this sermon for three days this past week after I wrote it. And I gave him about four different endings, and he didn't like any of them. So I said, fine, have it your way. I will read it as you wrote it. And if they don't like it, they can tell you about it. Now, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a few moments pause. And in this, you're going to pretend I'm telling a Father Stan joke. And then you can choose when I give you the signal to either moan and groan or you can, you know, laugh if you want to, which only encourages him. Okay. Let's hear it. All right. We're back on that mountainside with the same crowd of people who just had dinner with Jesus. They've spent the night there expecting to wake up in the next morning in time for breakfast a la Jesus. But when they wake up, he's already gone. Now in those days, their job didn't mean nine to five or eight to six, which is more like what we do nowadays. So they could sit around and wait. Maybe he would take that extra bread and make cinnamon rolls. That would be nice. Now before we go any further with this story though, I wanna take you back a few chapters to another story of an encounter with Jesus. This one is about a woman at a well in a very strange place. Let me set the scene. Jesus had to go through Samaria to get back to Galilee. Most Jews, remember, wouldn't dare go through Samaria. They walked around it because it was an unclean place to them. But Jesus isn't most Jews. So he goes into Sychar in Samaria and meets a woman who is drawing water at the well in the middle of the hottest part of the day. Jesus asks for water, and she critically responds with this retort. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Without flinching, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So she says, who are you? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug the well? And Jesus tells her, if you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink the water I give you, you will never be thirsty. And that water will become a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Her response, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus tells her to call her husband and then tells her he knows she's had five husbands and is living with a man who's not her husband. And she calls him a prophet. And then she talks about worship here or there in Jerusalem, which is right. Jesus says the time is coming when true worshipers will understand that worship is in spirit and truth because God is spirit. 
That's who God is calling. Okay, she says. I know the Messiah is coming and he'll explain all of this to us. And Jesus says, I am he who is speaking to you. At this point, there's no more debate. Without a single sign, without a single healing, or even a miraculous filling of her bucket, she runs to town to tell the people that she thinks she has spoken to the Messiah. And because of the excitement of this despised woman, they all come back out and listen to Jesus. And many of them believe because of her, and many more believe because of what Jesus himself says. Now, why am I reminding you of this? Because I want us to notice the attitude of this crowd compared to the attitude of that woman. First, let's look at the place where Jesus met them. The woman is in Samaria, hostile country to Jews. She's a foreigner. The Jews in our story today are situated in Jewish country on a mountainside, then in Capernaum. These are Jesus' people in Jesus' country. Now notice that Jesus had compassion for the one as well as for the many. You'll remember Father Larry spoke of Jesus' compassion a few Sundays ago. The good news is Jesus has no geographical boundaries on his compassion. Both the crowd and the woman were in spiritual need. And both were going to get the benefit of Jesus' touch in their lives. Now the crowd had gathered there on the mountainside because they had been watching Jesus perform signs of healing. And they were enchanted amazed at his words. So much so that it got to be evening and they were still there. Jesus supplied the physical needs of the crowd because without it, they wouldn't be able to continue listening to his teaching. Jesus looked at what they needed physically and provided so they could hear what they needed spiritually. He provided what they needed in order for them to hear. Now there's a lot of common ground between the woman and the crowd. Both of them asked Jesus to give them what, they, what he was offering. Both of them wanted an easy way out of the life they were living. Feed us forever and rule us so we can get rid of the Romans. Give me this water so I never have to come in contact with these people who despise me. And both of them recognized that Jesus may be a prophet. The crowd seeking Rome from seeking freedom from Rome, and the woman just intrigued by his comments. And both the woman and the crowd 
go back to the Old Testament to refute what Jesus says. Are you greater than Jacob, she asked. Are you greater than Moses, they asked. Jacob gave us water through this well. Moses gave us manna from heaven. At this point, though, the stories diverge. The woman is willing to take Jesus at his word. She has seen no miracle. She has only his words to convict her soul. She runs to town, not even concerned about her status. They have to know what she has found. She believes in him and forsakes who she is. Her belief far outweighs the social stigma that she carries. The crowd? Not so much. Okay. They have to concede that the manna is from God, not Moses. But then they want to know, what is the work that we can do for God? What's our part in this? They're willing to do whatever it takes to be free. But when Jesus explains, and I think we all need to hear this, that the work is God's, not theirs, they fall apart. And when Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life, they're not willing to give up their hero worship of Moses. They're not willing yet to give up their skepticism or to listen further. They don't want spiritual, they want physical. And they want it now. Give us the signs because those things are easy to believe in. Let us call you a healer, a miracle worker, a great storyteller. But you're still in a class with Moses and our ancestors. Don't go outside your box. We'll give you that you're a prophet whatever that is, but we can't go any further without a lot more proof. And Jesus understands. He knows what is in their hearts, he knows what is in their minds, and he knows how far they can go. He's given them the choice, he's told them the truth, and now they must decide what to do with that. Just like the woman at the well, these people will have to decide on their own whether to follow him or not, whether to go, let go of their old thinking and grab hold of the new. <laughs> Jesus is like that with us also. He knows how far each of us can go at this moment. And he knows that we must make the choice. And he offers us chances, not one, not two, but many, 
chances to accept him, to accept his truth, to forget the crowd and think for ourselves, to make that choice for ourselves, each of us individually, just like the woman at the well. And many of us have taken that first step. We will follow Jesus. We have decided that's the way we will go. But we're not quite sure what to do with that decision. Like the woman at the well, we have chosen. But like the crowd, we're uncomfortable with the choice. What comes after we take that step? This is a great place to meet up with Paul and the epistle. Because Paul explains to the Ephesians, people who have chosen to follow Jesus, just like us, that stepping away from the crowd and coming to Jesus is just that, a first step. Now, Paul says, now you'll want to learn how to live like Jesus did. And that is worked out in community, not alone. Because you can't just say you love people. You have to go out and actively love them. And Jesus knows that takes practice. A lot of practice for some of us. Jesus did not save us so that we could isolate ourselves from all the muck and mire of the world and someday go and be with him. He saved us so that we could live together and love together and work together to build each other up. And that's messy work. He saved us so we could build his great kingdom of people who love and worship God and who want the world to know and love God and become part of that kingdom too. Paul reminds us that we need to do this in humility, not with an arrogance of, I'm saved and you are not, but with a humility that says, Jesus loved me enough to save me and I want you to be a part of that too. There's that woman at the well again, running out to people who have shunned her, who have treated her as if she is as low as dirt, begging them to come and hear him, telling them, if it's true, you need to be a part of this too. And there's the crowd on the other side there, watching us waiting for more proof before they decide. Because, hey, they don't want to look foolish. They don't understand yet. And they can't make that leap yet. And they can't bring themselves to give up their old ways yet. So here's the question. Do you love those people Do you love that crowd 
enough to tell them anyway? Do you love Jesus enough to tell everyone? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.